Well, for our, for our study then today, I'll set the context for us in this way. Um, for, for a variety of reasons, we know that uh, final words or last words hold more than average sway. Uh, so, for example, uh, when an outgoing person in, in political power makes a final speech or statement before they leave office, the public tends to listen a little more attentively to that final speech. Uh, or when you're, when you're going to be separated from someone uh, whom you love, we, we consider what we say more seriously when it comes to saying our goodbyes, when we're going to be separated in that way. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's the founder of a company in his, in his retirement speech who, uh, who gives his final word and the company's very attentive to what, uh, to what the founder will say. Or maybe it's the final words of a loved one as you go visiting them knowing that, that it may be the last time that you'll see them. Uh, we know that last words are counted as uniquely weighty. And as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 26, we come to a last words kind of section in this narrative. And that's because in chapter 26, we have, we have the last words exchanged between Saul and David. So after this chapter, while we'll still follow Saul in a couple of situations and Saul will speak, and, and obviously as the narrative goes on and into 2 Samuel, uh, we'll have much more with regard to what David says. But in this chapter, for all of Saul and David's history together, which we know is is a lot of history together. In this chapter, we have their last words to each other. And in knowing that, there's a unique weightiness and solemnity even that attends the text. Um, as, as a last words section, it's a uniquely significant encounter that's represented here. And so with that in mind, as we come to, to the study of this chapter, there are, there are really two main lines that we can look at in terms of what's going on here in this interaction. So, so, so on the one hand... In these events, and especially within the dialogue of these events, there, there is a profound lesson in, the, in a contrast between growing faith with regard to David and then what also proves to ultimately be a dead faith with Saul. So in this chapter, David displays exemplary trust and Saul displays what we just might call exemplary false piety. It's a false faith that's represented here. And so, and so one thing this chapter helps us with is, is truth around what it really looks like to trust in the Lord. There's, there's a very critical lesson for us here in that. And, and that's a lesson we're going to return to and study through next week. That'll be the content of next time. And we'll especially focus in more detail on the dialogue that is occurring here between David and Saul. Lord willing, that will be next week. This week... What we're going to do is we're going to work through this chapter and we're going to think along another line, maybe more of a, a, a meta line that's running through this passage, which is centered on, on some profound truth regarding what this section tells us about God's choice king. So, so in this final encounter between Saul and David, we're helped to see more clearly what is true of the king of God's choosing. Remember that that, that is what has really marked David out in this narrative. The burden of this narrative so far has been to set a contrast between Saul, who is the people's choice as king, and David, who is a man after God's own heart. David, who is Yahweh's, the covenant God's choice as king. So there's been that contrast all the way through. And, and as we come to this section, uh, we're given some significant truth with regard to how we understand the way things go, the way things are for God's choice king and his way in the world. And, and we know this is an important line of instruction here because we remind ourselves that in considering David, we have this figure who's pointing forward to God's final and climactic king. 
which, which just brings us to a point that we need to continually uh, be reflecting upon as we're studying our Bible together. Because as we're studying our Bible, we know we are constantly doing the work of theology. That theology is that word, there's a combination of two words, theos, which means God, and logos, which means word. So when we're coming to the Bible, we're coming to God's own revealed word about Himself and His world and what it means to know Him. And as we're studying the Bible theologically, uh, there really is no other way to study it, it's words about God. As we're studying the Bible theologically, we understand that there are different ways to do that. So, so for example, scholars will speak about systematic theology. Uh, which basically looks at the Bible and pulls out big truths that help feed into an understanding of a particular topic. So with a systematic theology reading of our Bibles, we may be looking through and, and saying, how does the Bible inform our understanding of the fact that God is omniscient, the fact that God knows all things? That's a, a question for systematic theology. And that's an important work to do. And we're doing that even as we're reading our Bible on our own throughout our week. We're, we're, we're pulling out these truths that are help informing us about the character of God or the nature of how His world works, things, things like that. Uh, but then along with systematic theology, there is also what scholars will refer to as biblical theology. And when we're speaking about biblical theology, we're really speaking about how each specific narrative and, and moment in the history that is revealed in Scripture is actually informing a whole picture of how God is working in the world in which we live. So there is these kind of series of still shots Throughout the Bible, as we're studying this narrative, for example, here's a still shot, a picture of an event that takes place. But when we're doing biblical theology, we're asking how does that still help inform the total redemptive tapestry that's unfolding before us in God's revealed Word? And, and, and so we need to have that in place as well, because we get into the New Testament, and the writer to the Hebrews, for example, expects that we read our Bibles that way. So the writer to the Hebrews can say things, if you remember from our studies, like, Jesus is a better Moses. Well, how in the world can he speak about Jesus being a better Moses? Well, well, he helps to explain that by saying, as we're seeing Moses' leadership of the people, we're meant to be thinking that Moses is pointing forward to the ultimate and climactic leadership of the one who is really going to bring us into the promised land. Jesus is a better Moses. He's a better Joshua, things of that nature. So Paul, speaking to the Colossians in chapter 2, can say things like, the Old Testament provided a shadow, but in Jesus, we have the substance. Uh, there are these figures and pictures that are driving us forward ultimately to what is climactically true in the person of Christ, which is what Jesus sums up in places like John chapter 5, which we often quote, where, where Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, like scriptures are a mere end to themselves, but he says it's the scriptures that testify to me. In other words, if you are reading your Bible properly, and as I appear on the scene of history, Jesus is saying, you would recognize me because I'm the one to whom the Scriptures are continually pointing. And so, and so for that right reading of our Bibles, we, we employ what we just happen to name biblical theology. We're looking at these stills going through the Old Testament narrative, for example. We're looking at these incidents that take place, but we're not looking at them in isolation. We're looking at them through the lens that Christ himself teaches us to read our Bible through. Namely, these things are pointing forward to Jesus. And as we come to the narrative of David, we certainly have an extraordinary example of the necessity of reading our Bibles in this way. Uh, because as we recognize David's uh, position as God's chosen king, 
we see through David's line, as God will promise in 2 Samuel 7, through David's line is going to come the ultimate king, the eternal king over God's people. So, so David is pointing us in this direction that ultimately climaxes in Christ, so much so that, for example, when Matthew begins his gospel, we have Jesus' royal line as God's king traced through the lineage of David. Or when we have Paul opening the book of Romans, speaking about the extraordinary glories of the good news about Jesus, how does he define the gospel when he opens up, when he opens up his, his letter to the Romans? Well, he speaks of Jesus Christ our Lord, descended from David according to the flesh. You see, this is an important connection, Paul says. This is the same thing when he talks to Timothy later on. So, so central to an understanding of the good news about Jesus is that he is the better king that we're longing for, and we're meant to be longing for him from passages in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is meant to stir us up with a kind of anticipation, looking forward to a climactic realization that will occur in the, in the person of Jesus. He is, in the case of royalty, Jesus is the better king we're longing for. And, and we see how the Old Testament functions in this shadow kind of way, pointing forward toward the substance that's found in Christ, even in the way the narrative unfolds for us at different times. So, so for example, here we have David, who is pursued by a king who wants him dead. How does Jesus' incarnate earthly life begin? Well, he's pursued by Herod, the king, who wants him dead. Right? We have Jesus out in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, pursued in a way that, in, in which the devil is seeking to cause Christ to sin. He's being tempted. Here we have David out in the wilderness, pursued by Saul, even tempted to sin in, in, killing of, in the killing of Saul. We've seen these kinds of things. And so as we, as we start to put this together, we realize that there's something shadowy, not in a negative sense, in a, in a positive sense, there's something shadowy about David's life that is driving our attention forward to the substance of, of, of royalty found ultimately in the person of Christ. And so as we read our Bibles, we want to be prepared to read them in such a way that acknowledges this is how God has put his revelation together in order that we might have a full and complete picture of who Jesus really is. That's why without the Old Testament, we can't really anticipate Christ properly because all through the Old Testament, we have this built-in longing that is there for us, these built-in shadows that are pointing us forward so that when Jesus appears on the scene, we can say, oh, there he is. He's the one we've been expecting. He's the one the Scriptures have been, have been pointing us forward to. And, and we find that occurring in a unique way in, in, our, in our passage this morning. It occurs in every passage, but, but in, our, in our passage this morning, we have some help just as we think about God's choice King David. Here we have the final interaction between God's choice for King and the people's choice for King. And in this final interaction, again, there's uniqueness in terms of a shadow that points to the substance with regard to the significance of the person of Christ and what it means to know Him. So, so we can be helped in that, and that's what we're going to focus on this week. Again, next week, we'll come back and we'll ask some questions about what genuine faith looks like from this passage, and we'll get into some, some more of the expository details of this passage then when we do that. But this week, we have this final word between Saul and David, and in this encounter, there's some significant truths about, about the king whom God ultimately sets over his people. Um, and so with all that said, uh, what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll get into the text today, and it would be good to follow along. We are going to move quickly. We need to. 
to, to, to get the, the, the big picture of what's going on. And it's always good to follow along in your Bible, but, uh, but today I'd encourage you to do that as well. Um, and we're going to begin in the first two verses, uh, and we'll think about those two, first two verses under the heading, the king's apparent vulnerability, okay? The king's apparent vulnerability. Um, so, so if you're looking at the beginning of the chapter, things start off actually in an extremely concerning way for David. And we reach that conclusion for a few reasons based on that passage that I added to our reading here uh, that, that we just went through at the end of chapter 23. So we're concerned for David because the Ziphites who betrayed David to Saul back in that chapter 23 section that I, that I just read for us, they're now betraying David again. So that's concerning. Uh, they come and tell Saul that David, where David is hiding, so, so this is bad. And then with that, Saul is accompanied by 3,000 fit young men as he immediately takes off in search of David. And you might remember from a couple studies ago, this translation of fit young men as it describes Israel's soldiers. It's, it's more of a technical term uh, that, that doesn't really refer to just some young soldiers who are in really good shape, like let's take the soldiers who can do the most pull-ups or something like that. This is actually a way of referring to, to elite soldiers in Israel's army. So again, Saul's not just bringing his, his regu regular military men with him in this next hunt for David. He's gathering together uh, what we can understand to be a kind of special forces group, and they're coming for, for David again. And while both the, the betrayal by the Ziphites, who are, who are part of Judah, you remember that? So David's being betrayed by his own tribesmen here, which is extra painful. But with the, the betrayal by the Ziphites and Saul's really potent army, with those things put together, we can be really concerned when we think about what might happen to David now. And what really makes us worried is that the last Ziphite betrayal in this very same wilderness countryside that's described here, this was the exact same scenario we just read about back in chapter 23, where David was chased down to the point of being encircled by Saul's army and almost killed. Like it's the closest Saul has gotten to taking David out was the end of, of chapter 23 so far. It was, it was very close. Uh, obviously the Lord worked uniquely there. Saul went away because of the Philistine threat. But, but as we read these opening lines of chapter six, uh, 26, we have to wonder, you know, can, can David possibly make it out of this one this time? If we're speaking just in human categories, uh, we're, we're going to say David is pressing his luck. You know, can, can he get so lucky again? Last time Saul got called away. This time, no, things, things are, are not looking good. Uh, not only because Saul's coming in the same way with the same group of betrayers, all of that, but now he's actually brought better fighters with him. So he got close last time with just the average military. Now he's brought this elite group with him, and, and we have to think, uh, I mean, how much more worried should we be about David? He, he could very, very well get it this time as we just uh, open, up, open up this chapter. Uh, so in these first two verses, we're, we're very much brought along by the narrator to recognize that David appears to be in an extremely vulnerable position. Before when David was here, he almost got killed. Right? So, so the king of God's choosing, he seems extremely vulnerable. And, and just here, we, we do well to pause and consider uh, this in the way just the scripture the way the, the scripture calls us to think about these things because not only is this narrative about David remember but this is as we're as we're seeing a pointer to inform our understanding of God's ultimate king Jesus remember if David's the shadow Jesus is the substance and as we contemplate David's experience we do see the parallel with Christ here 
Because this begins with David in an apparently very vulnerable position. And we've talked about this a little bit already. Remember the Lord Jesus, by all accounts, he appeared vulnerable in his earthly ministry. Herod wanted all the babies killed when Jesus was young. Remember that? Jesus begins his public ministry with the, the devil tempting him. The religious leaders desired to kill Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by his own people. Not unlike Saul is being betrayed by the Ziphites, the people of his own tribe here. And the parallels go on and on. But, but in this chapter of 1 Samuel, as things begin, it seems like David's going to be done. Fast forward, and as we start reading the account of Jesus' incarnate life, as he comes into the world, we can reach the same conclusion. Jesus will be done. And, and while we know that, that the desire to murder Jesus wasn't the final word, resurrection was the final word, the threat in Jesus' life parallels the vulnerability of, of David's own circumstances. And, and that's not just the case in Jesus' earthly ministry, but even now in our contemporary age, the apparent vulnerability of God's king can still give us cause for concern. Just as we think about the lordship of Jesus and what that means in our own immediate social context, culturally speaking, Jesus might as well be chased off into exile or so, it seems. He, he, he appears to be so vulnerable in our time. Will Jesus and his way, will Christianity stand in our day? For example, just a, a few months ago, it was in September, a, a Pew Research study came out, and it was focused on Christianity in North America. And while the, the study acknowledged that things can always be different than predicted, uh, based on current trends, uh, the study was, the data there was showing that in about 40 years from now, Christianity will have moved from, from the majority place it once held in our culture uh, to being a, a religious affiliation held by less than half the population of the United States. And, and then with that, the study went on to say that in that same time frame, the religious nuns, not the N-U-N-S's, but the N-O-N-E-S's, those who are completely unaffiliated with any kind of religious a group whatsoever, the religious nuns, will occupy nearly the same population of, 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 uh, north of the North American social climate as, as, as do Christians, again, as, as the years go by. And this isn't really news for us. We, we see this happening around us. Uh, but, but in our nation, if we were just looking at things from a certain perspective, it would seem that King Jesus and his way is what? Extremely strong and superior? No. The way of the king and society around us Seems very vulnerable. And, 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 so, and so does the, the general societal posture toward the king at large. It feeds into this as well. It feeds into this very much so. So in our contemporary age, the prevailing belief reflects uh, something of, of no transcendent accountability on our part as humanity. That doesn't bode well for a Lord who claims cosmic authority. There, there's no felt need for redemption or reconciliation uh, to any kind of transcendent being in our culture, but instead uh, the age in which we live lauds the affirmation of the self, the, the only true transcendent thing about me is the position which I have elevated, uh, to which I have elevated my own desires, my own conclusions, and those kinds of things. Right? So just, just listen to the way one writer puts it. He says, our culture has taken a strong inward turn, Modernity has stressed looking inward to forge our own identity based on our desires and then moving outward to demand that society honors our individual interests. 
It's a very good summative statement of, what, of what's going on in the world around us. In society at large, we're not a people who feel our deep creaturely dependence. We're not looking for a reconciler. We're not feeling our need uh, for, for a Lord who can save, a king who can rescue. None of that uh, is, is, is part of our thinking. We are our own king. We don't want God's king. We're only concerned that everyone knows that I'm king of me. And by the way, everybody's moral job at that point then is to affirm my own sovereign ruling of my own life. So, so, so this, this isn't just a Pew Research study thing. As, as society goes, people aren't looking for a hope found in a Lord and Master who comes as a Savior King. As a society in general, in North America at least, we hate that idea. We hate it. So, so it would seem that the royal and high position of Jesus is vulnerable. Does it seem like that to you? I mean, just sitting in the classroom for kids in school. Sitting in the classroom at school, does it feel like Jesus is strong? It doesn't, does it? Right? Talking with your coworkers or reading the news outlets or hearing the dialogue of political pundits. Does it seem like Jesus is sitting as the powerful king appointed by God the Father over the cosmos? It doesn't. It doesn't. As we think about things around us, we can very much be confronted with the apparent vulnerability of God's king. And that can be disheartening and that can be confusing. But then... We remind ourselves that we use the word apparent here on purpose, don't we? The apparent vulnerability of God's king. Because as things go on, we know the king of God's choosing is actually far from truly vulnerable. No matter how many elite soldiers from Saul out are out there, and no matter how, how rigorously voices around us may affirm the sovereignty of the self, we know that something else is actually finally and climactically true about God's king. And so as things go on, we know the king of God's choosing is far from vulnerable. There may be an apparent vulnerability, but in reality with God's king, there's actual superiority. There's actual superiority, which is what we see play out in verses 3 to 22 of this chapter, which we'll move through quickly, but just, just, just see this. Because, <clears throat> because the stage is... Is, is really set in those first two verses in a way that gives us concern for David. You remember the last time David was chased by Saul after being betrayed by the Ziphites, he was encircled. It was almost the end of David. However, <clears throat> by the time we get into verse 3 here, we see that things are depicted in a very different way than last time. So, so in verse 3, we read that while Saul is encamped in, in the wilderness where David is, David discovered that Saul had come there after him. And in verse 4, David sends out spies and the text says that David knew for certain that Saul had come. Which is actually a fairly rare expression in Hebrew that's used there, translated knew for certain. And what's interesting is that back in chapter 23, that same terminology had been used about Saul when he was pursuing David at this time. Saul was the one who knew for certain back in chapter 23, but something's switching here. Now David is the one who knows for certain. So things are, things are beginning to be inverted. And, and this kind of inversion continues because instead of Saul aggressively pursuing David, like back in the chapter 23 incident, now verse 5 tells us that David went to where Saul was. So David is the aggressor now. And instead of Saul encircling David with his troops, making David feel very, uh, realistically very unsafe, instead we find in the end of, of, of verse 5 that Saul is the one encircled with his troops as he sleeps, but is Saul safe in that encircling of his troops? Saul absolutely is not safe encircled by his troops. 
There he is asleep in the encampment with Abner, who's his cousin, and also his chief warrior, who's the head of his army. Abner's sleeping right next to him. Saul has the spear by his head. What good is he going to do with that? We know he can't hit anything with it, but it must make him feel better to have it. So Saul's spear is by his head. His water, obviously, that's sustenance and life in the wilderness. Saul's spear and water are by his head. And he's surrounded by 3,000 elite soldiers. And he's sleeping within, very literally, the text says, the wagon tracks of that circle. So like Saul's in there in the middle, troops are all around, sleeping right by the, the guy who's supposed to guard him. But in the circle of that troop, is Saul safe? Is Saul the one who, Saul's absolutely not safe. David wasn't safe last time as the troops encircled him. Now Saul, for all the way things look, he should be safe, but he's not safe at all. Because what we read is that David and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and one of the men from his own army, who proves to be quite the warrior as the narrative goes on, David, they go into the camp, and while all the men remain asleep, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment here, while all the men remain asleep, David uh, steals Saul's spear and Saul's water. Now, now Abishai, who comes with David, who again proves himself to be quite the, the mighty warrior, violent warrior, always ready for action as the narrative will go on. Um, Abishai comes, and he's ready to take Saul out. It, it's actually kind of funny. Where he said, it's not funny, I guess, I don't know, it's, it's sad, but, but he, he says, you know, I can take Saul out with just one, I just need one shot, which is funny because we all know how well Saul's done with his spear and his multiple shots. He misses every time. Abner, or, uh, uh, Abishai almost was making a joke out of it. I just need one whack, David, I can take him out, it can be all done. But, but we know because of David's growth in faith, which we'll talk about next week, uh, David is not going to have the Lord's anointed killed. He's going to trust in the Lord to take care of that. That will be something we talk about next week. Instead, uh, David and, and Abner, or David and David and uh, Abishai come back out of the camp. They go to a far hill, holding the spear and the water. The spear, obviously, being a symbol of Saul's power. They go there, and from that point, David condemns Abner and his men for not protecting Saul. So, like you soldiers, haven't done done your job. And then David confronts Saul about the fact that he's still chasing him, even though David is innocent. So Saul and David then have this, have this interaction. And, and in case anyone has any doubt about who's really vulnerable here, David is the one who ultimately holds up Saul's spear. Right? Who, who, who's really the one in charge? Who's really the superior one here? You were sleeping encircled by your troops. How did that really work out for you, Saul? David's the one who's holding up the spear, saying, I have your symbol of authority and I could have used it against you. But I didn't. But I could have. And in the midst of that, Saul sputters these words of regret, even though they sound like repentance. They're not repentance, they're regret. He sputters these words of regret, which we'll talk about next week too. He blubbers a little bit. And in verse 22, David holds up the spear and he says, if you want it, why don't you send somebody over to get it? Um, but, but, but what we see in this section is a total inversion of what happened in the, in, in the last chapter, in chapter 23, in that whole scenario there. Because as, as this chapter begins, it would seem like David is about to face maybe the greatest threat he's faced to date as he's on the run from Saul, just given the circumstances that are laid out. But instead of that, what we see is that in the final encounter between David and Saul, David, the Lord's choice king, isn't actually so vulnerable after all, but instead he's the one who holds the weapon in the end, that symbol of authority and power, uh, which he's stolen from next to Saul's sleeping head. So, so we might have thought David was in a place of weakness, but what really happens is an inversion of all of that, and the final word is that David is the victor. Which, of course, drives us immediately to understand uh, what, what's, what's going on with the Lord Jesus. And this is why we need some of these narratives to fill in our understanding of, of what's going to be true in the greater king's ministry when he comes. 
uh, because this is the kind of thing that Jesus' own disciples didn't have a category for. If you remember, as Jesus was constantly instructing them. So, so Jesus would speak about being handed over to the authorities and crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And the disciples, all they, all they could hear was the weakness in all of that. They, they, they had no category for this vulnerable king, uh, vulnerable appearing king at least, no category for a crucified and buried king. None of that made any sense to them, which is why Jesus is always saying, you need to know your Bible better. You need to understand the Scriptures more. Because what have, the, what have the scriptures been pointing forward to? Well, they've been pointing forward to that while vulnerability is apparent with the Lord's King, vulnerability is not the final word with God's King. Ultimately, he's going to prove to be the superior and the victorious one, just as David is ascending the mountain, so to speak, on the other side, holding the spear. The King wins. And there's a sense in which this continues to play out as we think of following Christ in our time. We need to have a category for the fact that while the lordship of Jesus, he may appear to be, to be weak, to be vulnerable, we have to understand that ultimately there is a superiority, a strength, a victory that attends the Lord Jesus full stop no matter what we're seeing going on in the world around us. We need to be prepared for that category to exist. And there's a way that obviously played out in Jesus' earthly ministry, something that his disciples came to understand over time, uh, even, even as they struggled through what Resurrection Sunday meant. That's something they came to understand over time. But there's a sense in which this continues to play out as we think of following Christ in our time. Uh, just on the, on the biggest of scales, on the one hand, we know this will play out in the grand schematic of history as things reach their climax. Because while, while many today might reject the Lord Jesus, one day all will bow. So, so, so this plays out in an ultimate sense in Christ's return, in that, in that the Jesus who seems sidelined so often by culture will ultimately prove to be the Jesus of eternal cosmic lordship. And whether it is with redeemed joy or whether it is with weeping and gnashing of teeth, every knee will bow and confess that lordship. He will be proved to be the superior one. That, that is what's happening. So, so we recognize that's true on a cosmic scale. He will be recognized as the victor. But, but at the same time, <clears throat> even now, uh, there, there are indicators of Christ's superiority within the world around us that we need to have eyes to see and hearts oriented towards. Because, because the Christ who's returning is the Christ who's still active as the victorious and reigning king like right now. And we can see this as we think about various examples in culture, but let's think about this just in the context of the sexual ethic that Christ prescribes. So the committed union of a man and a woman in marriage. Society disavows itself of the exclusivity of sexuality in the marriage relationship, thinking it's archaic and, and places oppressive limits on desire, which in turn you know, takes away pleasure that we should otherwise be free to seek and things of that nature. And so, and so we hear words, our children hear this in school, we hear words like consent being used to, to, to speak of, of the proper foundation for sexual intimacy. So if both agree it's okay, let your desires be fulfilled unchecked. The ethic of the great king seems vulnerable and worse. Uh, really, the, the way of Christ seems to be dead in all of this. Because what really matters in the sexual realm is consent, not a view of, of a sexual relationship that aligns with the lordship of Jesus. Christ seems weak in the public sphere when it comes to the sexual ethic of the gospel. However, does Christ's way really represent frailty in that? Let, let me read you this statement 
put together for helping Christians navigate this kind of thing as put together by the Presbyterian Church in America. L listen, listen to this and note how countercultural but life-giving this is. Here it is. Especially as we think about words like consent being thrown around. Christians believe sexual intimacy is not for those who merely give temporary consent for one sexual encounter, but for those who give permanent, whole life consent to each other through marriage. And even inside marriage, sex must be mutually consensual. This reflects how we know God through a covenant of exclusive love. Now, now that might sound like, like burdensome religious language at first, but, but when it comes to a sexual ethic, where does the superior position really lie? Does it lie in thinking that sexual fulfillment can come from a once or twice transactional sexual encounter that takes place uh, based on a single affirmation of, of consent? Is life found there? Is, is lasting joy and human fulfillment really found there? Is wholeness of our human personhood fostered in that kind of thing? Or is the superior position found in the ethic of the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to a lifetime of mutual consenting love with the person we're entirely committed to for the whole of our life to sac sacrificially care for and love and support and never abandon or betray? Which option will bring pain? Which option will bring joy? I'll tell you, the joy is in the sacrificial lifetime commitment of consent that mirrors Christ's own love for us. Right? Not in the transactional consent of the world around us. So, so you see, at first pass, the king's position might seem like the inferior position. But then as we start to think about how hearts can be affected by contrary ways to the Lord Jesus, how the world around us may laud its position loudly and with great praise and, and all of those kinds of things, ultimately we see that there is a superior position that plays out in the end and it is not the position that is the people's choice as whatever might rule the day. It is the superior position of the Lord's choice king. We see that cosmically and on the final day at the return of Christ, but we see that even play out now if we have eyes to see. But which, which is very interesting if we have a moment even to speak about these kinds of things. Because you notice in this final word between, between Saul and David, Saul actually affirms this in the end. What, is, what does he say there in verse 25? He says, you will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Even Saul in all his rebellion is looking at David and his obvious victory in these circumstances that are beyond how Saul's comprehension. He thought he was saved. Even Saul has to look at that and say, I can his is the prevailing way. He's going to win. Right? Because there's, there's, there's life found in that, which, it, which is sourced ultimately in the answer to all that's going on here in this chapter and in the answer to what it means even to know the Lord Jesus. Because as we come through uh, situations like this, moving from a vulnerable awareness or an awareness of, of the apparent vulnerability of the king, as we move into an understanding of the actual superiority of the king, we're going to have the question, what, what, what is going on here? What is making the difference between uh, what, what seems so vulnerable, but what ultimately is superior? And the answer to that question is, the Lord is on the side of the righteous. That's ultimately the answer that this text gives. Right? And then we, we saw this already in the text, because, because David was successful back in verse 12, uh, due to the fact that the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and his men. So the Lord is active in a unique and a miraculous way to bring David to a superior position in that otherwise dark encircled event. God is active to display His power for the sake of His, of his righteous King. That's what He's doing there. 
And if you want to do your homework, you can think about a few other places where we have the Lord causing a deep sleep. You think of that, Genesis 2, where the Lord removes a rib from Adam and creates the woman. Genesis 12, where God makes his covenant with Abraham, that promise of an eternal son that's going to come. The Lord caused him to fall into a deep sleep. This is God's unique activity in bringing things about in such a way that life is going to be there according to his promise. And we see that connected very much to what David will say in the end. Though David is not faultless, and we'll talk about the place of his faith and the way he can make a statement like this next week, uh, but in the most grand way, what, what this does is promote our confidence in the better king as David recognizes ultimately that the Lord is the one who works for the one who's, who's trusting in him. Uh, so, so David can say the Lord in verse 23, the Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. This, this is how it looks to be affiliated with the king. The king, in the most climactic way in the Lord Jesus, is the one who comes in perfect righteousness and perfect loyalty to God the Father. Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills God's purposes perfectly. Total obedience, complete and absolute sinlessness. And what is the end of that for Christ? The end is not the cross. The end is the resurrection. The end is the ascension. Ultimately, the end is the return where all things will be brought before Christ and His glory will be on display for the entirety of the world to see. The end for the righteous king is total and complete reward. And the glory of that is that as we align with the righteous king, while we might find ourselves faltering in so many ways, or we might find ourselves looking at this definition and go, oh, he, he's, he's the one who's going to repay Every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. We find ourselves going, Lord, what will I, what will I even receive? Because I feel my own folly in this. I know my unrighteousness. I know, all these, I know all these aspects of my life that reflect a disloyalty to your way. I know all of these instances where I've, where I've, instead of aligned with the king of your choosing, I've aligned with authorities of my own choosing, doing things I want to do in my way. What will ever become of me? But of course, the great message of the, of the greater king is that with him, all the benefits of the kingdom of grace become ours, which is actually something reflected in this chapter too, because we see in this chapter there are two people with David. There are two people who've been with David in this chapter. One of them is Abishai, the son of David's sister. So it's a family member of David. And then the other one is this Hittite individual, Ahimelech. The Hittites are the equivalents of, of, of the Canaanites. Right? So they are not Israel. They are not God's people. The Canaanites are the opposite of God's people. But who is there with the king as the king finds himself in this ultimate position of confessed superiority? Well, those who are in his family, right? but those who would otherwise be very far from him. It's an amazing picture of the king of God ultimately bringing in Jews and Gentiles, that broad picture in biblical categories. Those who are with the king are not the ones who always deserve to be there. Those who are with the king are the ones who have gathered to him recognizing that he's the one who can ultimately bring us to this place of peace. And so we see all that play out in this chapter in such a way that moves us from a place of maybe discouragement, maybe, uh, maybe confusion, maybe disillusionment about what it really means to know and follow the Lord Jesus. Is he, is he really going to win in the end? Is his way really life in the end? Is, this, is his way really going to be what brings me to that place of peace? And a passage like this puts on narrative display for us the fact that while there may be an apparent vulnerability as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus, especially as we do that in society at large and we feel the pressure and all of the things that that can bring, ultimately what we have with Jesus is the superior position of victory. 
And we see that put on display in various ways throughout the world as we have eyes to see. Saul seems to have eyes to see it to a certain degree here by the end. He says, you're going to be the victor. I get it. You're the superior king. As we have eyes to see, we can see that put on display in various ways in the world around us. And in an ultimate sense, in a final word kind of sense, we know this is what's going to be true about Jesus. He will return. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And being with the Lord, being on the Lord's side, no matter if we're a Hittite or not, being on the Lord's side brings us into a place of participating in the reward that Christ has earned because He is the perfect righteous one. And in that we have the good news of the gospel. We're with the King who wins. We don't win because we've been so powerful, because we've been so great, because we've been so sneaky. David sneaks into the camp. David doesn't win because he's so successful. David wins because the Lord is on the side of the righteous and the Lord fought for him. And so we can be renewed in these truths and encouraged in these things. There may, there may be uh, instances in your own life right now where, uh, where it seems as though uh, Jesus' way isn't the prevailing way. It may seem like there's a better way. It may seem like there's a safer way. It may even seem like there's a more logical way. But as we put these things together, we're reminded that ultimately there is only one who has life, and that one is God's King. And so we're brought again to be, be renewed in our trust in Him this morning. And we look forward to thinking more even about what faith looks like in a context like this as we continue to study the passage next week. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that we would be renewed in your truth. Uh, as the psalmist says, delight our hearts to fear your name. Uh, you are the one in whom hope can be found, Lord Jesus. We confess you to be our king, and where we falter, we pray that you would lift us up and renew us. We know uh, that with you, because of your righteousness, we're safe. And we pray that that would be something that is continually in our minds, draws us out in worship, draws us out in trust, and ultimately uh, preserves us as we seek to walk in your way and live out the light of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.